Well, we're going to have a, a, a conversation here this morning. I'm excited about it. Um, we're in a series talking about our kind of rhythms as a church, and one of those is uh, engaging cross-culturally. And I thought it'd be fun to invite Robert to come and, and uh, just chat. And uh, Robert is the uh, CEO of Answer Poverty. And uh, I even have your bio here, but I'm not going to read it all because he's done quite a bit. But uh, you've done uh, some fantastic things over 25 years of social service and community development, award-winning developer of social service programs, advocacy efforts that have resulted in $2 million in community development, and uh, a proven civic leader and community 200 leader. $200 million. $200 million. Did I say two? Yeah, $200 million. So Robert's also with us uh uh, starting a couple months ago on an 18-month journey that he's leading a team of leaders. It includes uh, leaders from our church from a variety of places in a process called MEIQ, multi-ethnic IQ. So um, I asked Robert if he'd come share. I asked him if he wanted the questions ahead of time. He said, no, I'd like to just uh, be surprised, which I think is really great. And so he doesn't even know what I'm going to ask. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, uh, why don't we start by you just introducing yourself and uh, sharing a little bit about uh, who you are. Well, um, first, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, spend a little bit of time in front of you all. Um, and um, I've now, how long have I known you? It's been four years yeah. at least. And um, I really appreciated that uh, Joe's uh, journey and Alyssa's journey as pastors um, have taken them to a place where the reality of at least what's in their hearts to do or what church is supposed to be about in the world uh, is really beginning to, uh, I guess, uh, irritate them enough to uh, realize that, you know, the way they were um, kind of trained or taught to think about church and what church is, is actually more problematic than most of us uh, really realize. And so uh, being invited to um, spend time with them and some of the leadership in the uh, congregation to help um, help them kind of think about that more deeply and then find some ways to apply the, the learning and to maybe change the dynamic of what Central City Church will be and become in the future. Um, I, I really feel honored to have been invited to be a part of that. And I, I say that to say that, that my, that's the nature of my work today. I, have, um, I did my first what would have been called diversity training back in 1998 at the uh, Vineyard Church um, in Columbus. And it was when I, when I was at Vineyard um, prior to that, a few years prior to that, it was just a vine. Um, and it was a little small congregation off of Cleveland Avenue, and I watched its uh, kind of growth and trajectory. Then it became, you know, the vineyard and then spun off a variety of congregations. But in that context of vineyard, I began to recognize that there were some things about the way we do church that contribute to why churches remain segregated in the way that we all are uh, aware that they are. And so while I didn't start um, with the, I, you know, I didn't start my work with the idea that I would be working with congregations 
to um, help them overcome the history of the church and its legacy as it's associated with race and racism and slavery and all that. I learned the reality of that impact by working closely with people who are really sincere and who really love God and were attempting to live out faith, but with no real clue as to why there was no success at actually building authentic relationship and all of that. So that's a, that's kind of the, that's, that's what I do now, but I didn't start off with the intention of doing that. I started off with the intention of addressing poverty in our community, hence the community development work that Joe referenced. Um, but for most of the last 12 years at least, and probably more intentionally in the last five to seven years, I have been primarily doing training uh, with churches, nonprofit organizations, uh, schools, teachers, healthcare providers, anyone who's working to address poverty. But you can't address poverty in this society without realizing the impact that race and racism has on it. So it's what led me to you know, try to help people figure that connection out, how race and poverty are conflated, and how the church, historically and to this day, continues to be complicit in its perpetuation. Yeah, so you, you would say that the, the issues around poverty dovetail or connect with issues. It's, it's, a, it's a racist issue. It has to do with racism, but then also the lack of diversity in the church. Like, these are all kind of a part of the same problem. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of resources out right now, uh, a lot of uh, books available around diversity or anti-racism. Um, what I love about you, Robert, is uh, whenever I talk to you, I feel like I'm not only being challenged in, in those segments, but I'm, I, I get to grow in my faith, and you're referencing scripture, and you're coming at it from a faith perspective. Could you share just a little bit, uh, kind of, your faith story, or how, how some of this work comes out of sure. your, your relationship with Jesus? Well, I am 61 years old, and um, the significance of that is I was born in 1960, um, and for the first four or five years of my life, it was still legal to discriminate against um, black people in America, in both the North and South. They were, it was legal to disenfranchise black folks. folks they, you could prevent black folks from voting. You could prevent black folks from going to school in different places. You certainly could prevent black folks from living in um, certain neighborhoods and all that. So in my lifetime, um, it was still legal in America um, and in a, in a, in just all over the country to do that form of discrimination and disenfranchisement. So I grew up um, in the wake of the civil rights movement where the church was the black church um, was the leader in our society and trying to take on that particular injustice. And so my, the church I grew up in was all about, you know, civil rights. Most of the black folks that I knew who went to church, um, we all celebrated Martin Luther King and then, of course, the Martin Luther King holiday and uh, we did Black History Month, and we tried to find as many black folks as we could who were like historic and iconic 
uh, figures that we always talked about. And none of that stuff was ever really addressed in um, school, none of the history in that regard. But everybody knew who Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King were. But there was that was about the extent of it. But it was in the church where I got introduced to those things, and those things were sort of taught. And I understood that to be a part of my heritage. Well, I came to what I would call I surrendered my life to God after college when I was 25 years old, and that was in 1985. And I began my own sort of journey to understand God. And I didn't spend a whole lot of time in church. The first year, I was actually living in New York City, and I just read the Bible and interacted with a few TV preachers watching stuff. But I worked and didn't go to church on Sundays, and I uh, began um, getting some perspective, I guess. I mean, I'm a college graduate. I can read. Let me read the Bible um, without someone telling me what it was supposed to mean. Like, you know, you all know that deal. Somebody has told you what these scripture mean and, and you know, kind of taught you what they mean and what their application is. Well, I did that without anybody telling me that. And I began to draw very different conclusions about what the Bible was teaching. Um, and when I came back to Ohio, um, I found myself at that then young and fledgling vineyard um, church um, and a bunch of young people. Um, most of that leadership were just a few years older than I was at the time. And um, it was pretty uh, unique. It was a, 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 for me uh, and for most of the younger people who were part of that, it was a good, it was a welcome departure from the church I grew up in where you had to dress up and go to church every Sunday and all of that. You know, I went to a church service and, you know, was sort of dressed up and everybody had on, everybody looked like you all look today, had on shorts and flip flops. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I could hang out at this place. Um, and so I did. And I made a, uh, a lot of good and quality relationships there. But uh, about that time, the church growth movement, which is now kind of in the rearview mirror for most of us, was just beginning to hit Columbus. And um, I watched as the Vineyard Church grew as a congregation um, into what it eventually became. But I also watched how the, the racial divide became accentuated there. And um, these were people who I laughed and cried with and all expressed a love for Jesus. But it was clear to me that my experience with God and the, the church that I grew up in, which was all black, um, and their experience with God and the, what they were emphasizing as important and valuable were very different. And I didn't quite know what to do with that, but that was sort of the beginning of me starting to understand what I now understand much better today. And so I would say that my journey to this moment um, and where my faith is in God at this moment is informed by that kind of origin story relative to my faith and how race became an uh, issue that I'm aware of and how it influenced the church. So we're we're walking with you. You're leading us through a, a coaching consultation uh, called Multi-Ethnic IQ. Um, you've obviously given a, a pretty good breakdown with the team that we're working with. I wonder if you could just spend, I want to get into some other questions, but maybe just give us an elevator or like a brief explanation to everyone who's here, kind of what that is or what that looks like, or maybe, you know, the, the 
the purpose of it? You know, just kind of if you could help frame for for everyone sure. what what we're doing. The um, obviously this is a um, a very complex issue. It's not a it's not a it's not an issue that can be um, anything other than have the surface scratched in an elevator speech. So I want to I want to give you a little context for the statement I'll make, um, just so you can identify. You all um, have uh, lived in America. How many of you have lived in America most of your life? Like just most of your life. Born anybody not born in America here? this morning? So everybody was born in America. So um, how many of you, um, English is your primary language, if not your only language? Okay. All right. And how many of you actually speak another language that's not English? Okay, a couple of you do. Um, English, however, is your first language, right? Okay, so English as your first language, it's the only language you've ever known. Everything that you know and love and all the people that you know and love, all the context that you function in, all primarily English-speaking contexts, you function in those contexts with ease, without issue, without concern. Um, you don't even think about it. You don't even think about there being anything about that that's an issue or problematic whatsoever. And then um, things, you know, somebody who's not American and doesn't speak English might enter into your midst and, you know, they seem like an anomaly to you. Perhaps you're even, you certainly have some sort of reaction to them. Well, imagine that person and that person's perspective who um, English is not their native language. They weren't born here. And their whole culture that they grew up in or the place where they lived and came from was not set up and didn't function in the ways and the processes and things that um, uh, America culture and American society function. And so they got a, not only do they have a steep learning curve, the environment itself is actually harming them in some way because it's, it's without intending to be, it's very critical, it's very harsh, their experience. People who don't speak English are, have a hard time interacting with services. People who don't speak English, you know, have a hard time communicating what their needs and wants are. And the people who don't appreciate that are basically impatient and get frustrated. And because they got other things to do, they're not going to, you know, spend a whole lot of time investing in that. So I'm just setting up a dynamic that many of you might be familiar with on some level, right? So all of us in America, um, at this point, we have been in American culturalized church. The way we do church, our take on theology, our take on ecclesiology, our gatherings, the songs we sing, all of that stuff, that whole thing is a certain way that we are all comfortable with. So we can talk about the racial divide, but a black church does the same thing. They sing worship songs and they gather and somebody speaks and all of that. Um, and that's the thing that we've been accustomed to and we're comfortable with, and we don't think about it as being a problem. But what's happening now is there are more unchurched people walking around America than church people, and that tipping point probably happened about 15 years ago. And younger people who aren't churched 
and younger people who have been disillusioned by the American church, particularly in the last 10 years or so, um, post and even post 9-11, that younger generation is looking at the church in a, with a very suspicious eye, like what the heck is all that? Because it seems like the church has been endorsing all the things that this generation seems believes are problematic. They've been endorsing racism in some way, shape, or form. Um, evangelicals in record numbers voted for Donald Trump, who is the bane of most of this younger generation's existence, who is the symbol of hatred to their friends who are LGBTQ, certainly their friends that are racial and ethnic diversity. And all of that um, is the image of the church or what, how the church is projected to this generation. Well, my point in all of this and what I'm trying to do is to help churches, particularly younger churches, <coughs> I'm not sure what that was that flew in my mouth. <laughs> Excuse me. So, <clears throat> so what I'm trying to do is help churches recognize that some of the things that we do, which they aren't, they aren't benign. None of this, none of this stuff is bad um, in and of itself. But <clears throat> some of the things that we do as the church, some of the ways in which we are and how we interact in the community as a church, actually continues to perpetuate a lot of these problems that this generation perceives about the church. And so what can, what can a church do to, to kind of rethink how it ought to be in the world, ultimately. That's, that's the point. And so, like, if, if you have chosen to be welcoming, for example, of international folks who don't speak English, you realize you've had to make some changes in the way you do things in order to actually be welcoming. Um, the church has to recognize it needs to make some changes out of love and a desire to reach a generation that no longer relates to, resonates with, in fact, actually might be hyper um, negative and critical of the way church currently is. So that was a lot. That's not an elevator speech because this is not an elevator speech kind of answer. But at least I gave you a little, what I hope helps you. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about white privilege and this is something that we we've spent two sessions ago our class watched the videos and talked about and one of the things on my mind especially from what you just talked about is just this idea and so i want you to correct me or maybe add to it or you know whatever but we were talking a little bit about um whiteness and this idea that i don't even really recognize it because it's sort of the default, it's it's allowed to be the accepted normal, everything else is compared to it. I, I think that plays out in church and even like sort of some of the assumptions we make about how church is done. What are your, what are your thoughts in regards to some of that or um, helping us understand how white privilege plays out in church or in society in general? Again, not an easy thing to answer, um, but um, if I, when I, when you hear the term whiteness, not the folks who haven't been in the class or the discussion group, you all don't answer this question. But everybody else, um, 
when you hear the word whiteness or how Joe referenced it, <clears throat> I'd like, if you're willing, I'd like you to um, raise your hand and then I'll call on you and I want you to tell me how hearing that word or what that word, how that makes you feel. So if anybody is willing, so you hear the word whiteness, does that word make you feel any way or does it mean anything? If it does, raise your hand if you're willing to share that. Yes. Say again. Confused. Okay. Right. Did you say something else? I'm sorry. Gotcha. Okay. Anyone else have a thought? <clears throat> so if you didn't raise your hand and have a thought, did you ever think about it in any way or how it applies to you? If you thought about it, I mean, and how it applies to you, but you don't necessarily have a feeling about it, raise your hand. Okay. A couple people, most, a few more people thought about it or whatever. Okay. So <clears throat> um, I'll start with this. Um, can I, can yeah. I answer? Oh, sure. I, uh, for me, my, my reaction is, um, who are my white friends and family members who would be upset or argue with me if I brought the term up? That's gotcha. my reaction. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, first off, um, there is no white land. Um, everybody came from somewhere, has some geography on the planet, some ethnicity, that they hail from or their lineage hails from. When folks first came to the Americas, there were no white people. Um, whiteness, or whiteness as, as we've come to understand it now, uh, or as it's been understood colloquially, um, was not a thing. And so whiteness became a thing for a reason in American society. And it didn't have, these terms are not, um, they're not like ubiquitously in the mainstream of society. Among the reasons why many of you don't have any particular visceral reaction or, you know, associate with it in any way. Um, but it was, um, it was uh, in the academy, um, there was a paper written, which is almost probably 30 years ago now. Um, I believe her first name is Brenda, but it's Dr. Crenshaw wrote a paper called The Social Construction of Whiteness. And what she was able to do um, uh, is kind of chronicle the, or kind of unpack the dynamics of how whiteness works in American society. But one of the important um, things that she does is she kind of chronicles how whiteness even became a thing. And um, in your history, you may have heard something called Bacon's Rebellion, which was a rebellion of indentured servants, black, white, native, and the like. And they were uh, rebelling at what unfair treatment by the owner class or the landowning class at the time in the states. They had come over, they had contracts, they were supposed to work X number of years, then be able to be free and go do their thing or whatever. But the landowner class at that time, <clears throat> um, you know, 
play played dirty tricks and just conspired to keep them because you know they had a good thing going in terms of the labor and all of that. And in that rebellion, uh, all of those people who were indentured services servants who were Africans who had been um, brought over as indentured servants and and the natives who had become indentured and Europeans who had become indentured, they all rebelled. But the landowning class said, uh, well, we have to you know, quash that. So they did, but then they recognized that they didn't want that to happen again. And that was the beginning of imbuing whiteness. So the Europeans who, were, who had the lighter skin, who were obviously European descent, um, they begin to incentivize them recognizing that, okay, if you do what you're supposed to do, you can get in on this, you know, wealth or this opportunity or whatever. And while they sentenced everyone in that rebellion, though the Europeans got lesser sentences and it kind of went with the, you know, the sort of the darkness of your skin. And you go through the people who were indentured, you get to the Africans who were indentured, they were assigned uh, longer prison terms, you know, 20 years, 30 years, whatever. And when they were assigned to remain indentured servants for longer, it wasn't a prison term, but they had to just spend their indentured servitude out longer years. Well, over the next few years, this is in the 1400s, in the early 1500s, over the next 100 years or so, the, the value of having that um, those Africans um, become, you know, as servants who can do the work, uh, became very apparent. And then laws began to get passed to make those people actually permanently enslaved. They were easily characterized by the color of their skin. And then all the Europeans who began to come, who realized that there was a distinction, they began to assimilate to whiteness. And so all of you who have German heritage, Italian heritage, Polish heritage, how many of your ancestors begin to change their names, lose their dialects, and began to assimilate to what became known as whiteness, and they became white people because that's where all the power, politically, economically, and otherwise, it began to get concentrated when your skin color would, you, would allow you to assimilate into that. So that's the history of whiteness. Now, you were never taught that. I was never taught that. I didn't understand that. But most marginalized people know that intuitively. Most marginalized people know. And most white people are oblivious. They don't, not only don't know that history, they are oblivious to being white and what that even means in society. Well, one of the things that we have now is we have better language, um, better illustrations, and thank God, more receptive people who are willing to begin to take a deeper look at these things because the absence of understanding about whiteness is among the ways you remain complicit in the perpetuation of racism. So this isn't my perspective. I doubt it's anyone here, but we, we, I, I probably most people here have people who have this perspective. What, what's your response to, and, and this might be one of my last questions because I, I want to be respectful of time, and I know you want to open it up for conversation, but what's your response to that, this line of talk that's in our society and amongst people I know that says this kind of talk is divisive, um, it's in the same camp of like the all lives matter, like let's not, let's not talk about this, let's not 
wrestle like because it's divisive and it just causes more harm. What's what's your response to? I don't know if you're familiar with some of those thoughts, but what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, and um, the there's a s statement that kind of characterized this a little bit. People who have been privileged or who have been the beneficiaries of the status quo and, and, and even unaware of that, whenever we start moving toward equity, it feels oppressive to them. And so if you've ever been, if you've ever worked a job where a new boss comes in and they decide they're going to change some things and you've been there for a while and things have always been done this way and you've gotten comfortable with the way things are done and then a new boss comes in or a new supervisor comes in and they want to change things and it's your job, you know, you, you, I would imagine that most of you who enjoy being employed um, and paying your bills probably eventually got used to the changes that were made even though they may have upset you or been difficult. Um, well, it's kind of the same thing. And, and I'm not talking about, I, I don't, I'm not investing my time in the world at large, so to speak. Um, people who don't claim to follow Christ, who don't have an investment in the gospel or an investment in you know, loving people in some um, more meaningful way. I'm talking to church folks. Primarily, I'm talking to the folks who claim allegiance to Christ, who, who believe they are on the planet to be about a, a witness of the gospel. I am saying that you all have to recognize that some things have to change, that, that you have benefited. You've even constructed this church and this church service to be for you. N that's not bad. That's not, I'm not criticizing that offhand, but I am saying that by doing so, you have created an unintentional barrier to people who are not like you. The people who are not like you, who might be drawn to this congregation, who might be supposed to be a part of this congregation, or who might be able to add value to your understanding of Christ, your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of what the church can and should be, in American society. And without intending to do so, you have um, made it difficult, if not impossible, for those folks to find their way into this congregation. And if you really want to do that, then it's gonna mean you have to be willing to change some things about what you think church is, what you think church is supposed to be. And it principally, starts with you realizing that church is not for you. This whole idea that the church is for us. No, we are the church and we are for the world. And you've not been taught that. You've been taught that the church is, this is our church. This is my church. This is the church I go to. This is the church I attend. And, and, and that doesn't seem like that's a problem. But as a, as a starting idea, it, 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 it actually prevents you from understanding the real purpose of the church. The church is not for us. One of the unfortunate byproducts of the megachurch movement was it, does, it helped churches create uh, identities and, and cultural aesthetics that attracted people to come to church. And people just by default, even though nobody said it, by default, just assume this church is for me. This church is where I'm comfortable. I like to sing these songs. I like to do these things. And as long as that is the way you think about church and what the church is supposed to be, you won't be able to be a part of what the church is intended to be in the world. That's good. That's really good. Um, 
I forgot to mention earlier, and I know people like to think, but Robert did want to open it up for just conversation and questions. Um, I imagine our children might be running back to us at any point if they run out of activities, and uh, maybe Mary can even hear me way over there. Uh, whatever, whatever needs to happen, um, someone could text Molly, I guess. Matt, could you text Molly and say whenever it's fine? I know that they eventually run out of things, um, but um, but until that happens, uh, are there? Uh, does anyone have any questions? If you want to shout it out, I'll, I'll repeat it into the mic so that we get it on the recording. Let me let me ask that just for the recording. Um, so, what are some positives? What are some steps we can make to make positive change to be more diverse? Th um, that sort of thing. Right. Um, the, you all are doing it right now. Um, the MEIQ is a um, it's basically a 18 month uh, three part kind of um, training consulting engagement uh, to with some key influencers and leaders in this congregation to help them kind of do this deeper dive that I referenced earlier um, so that they could actually uh, begin to connect some of the dots I mean, there are things that we all do. I'll give you a more benign illustration. How many of you actually use the term or phrase rule of thumb? So you've used that term before. Do you actually know the etymology of the term rule of thumb? Some of you do. So rule of thumb was a, a term that um, was used to say that a man could beat his wife as long as he didn't use a stick or a rod that was uh, thicker than the width of his thumb. So you didn't know that. I didn't know that. And the first time somebody told me that, I stopped using that term because I now understood its history, you know. And so that's the kind of point I'm making. It's like you don't know what you're doing and you're not doing anything out of malice or intent necessarily. But if I found out the, the, the meaning of that term, rule of thumb, and I understood its meaning and how egregious and horrible that is, and I continued to use it because it served me, then now I'm com I got a problem. I mean, I, I'm, I'm culpable in a way that I need to be held accountable. And so part of this deal is you all beginning to learn through the, the leadership and the, the folks who are going through MEIQ to kind of do that deeper dive into the things that make up the, the context that is Central City Church, the emphases, the way you do things that might be might need to change in order to begin to see more diversity it's not about inviting people to come in it's about having an environment that if a person does come in they feel like this is a place that they can be and there are things that you do without intending to do so that actually make that difficult and you're going to discover those things over the next year year and a half and I keep telling uh, the group that we're walking through, it's just made up, uh, it was invited to anyone who wanted to participate, but it, it included um, some members of our church, um, 
uh, most of our staff and a handful of board members. And I've been telling them, and I'll say you all, you know, the process is meant to change us. Like it's really is meant to change some things, and and so that's going to happen. Uh, but one of the one of the things that as I'm beginning to understand is it, it can't change just simply because the the um you know the the you know Joe cast a vision and and you all rallied around it kind of changed. And like it, it really has to come from this discipleship model that Robert's leading us through, where we get into. Uh, this deep conversation, and, and and then eventually, you know, we learn about other modes and practices, and the group will get to experience other churches, and just a variety. It's an intentional process, and I want it to produce change. And um, and Robert reminds me, and I'm just going to throw it out there: there are some people here, and who are part of our church who aren't here, who won't like Central City because of the change, and that's fine. You know, that's just part of that's just part of change, but. But I think it'll make us more uh, able to accomplish the the intent of the gospel. So, I will. Let me add one more thing, yeah. um, just for your reference, that um, as this process goes forward with this core group of folks, there will be at least, um, I mean, if not every quarter, every four months or so, an opportunity to do a all you know whoever rest of the congregation kind of training or something where you all get a chance to interact with some uh, things. I do a poverty simulation, for example, um, that has a lot of these things baked into it that we're talking about. And, um, and so you'll get a chance to do that. Um, and so, so once this group of folks um, have um, processed through some things and have um, sort of the, the, the sense of capacity and confidence that they can continue to help shepherd uh, change within the congregation. Um, we'll introduce you all to some opportunities to experience some things, and then you all will be able to kind of unpack that in your small group discussions and other things. And there'll be some readings and things that you all could actually participate in. But it all starts with this core group of folks and uh, them, you know, learning how to be the change agents that um, need, they need to be to help the congregation begin to re-engineer itself. And I can say that um, the, 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 the long-term benefit will be um, welcomed. I mean, you know, the, the, this, there is so much value in appreciating um, what diversity brings to a congregation uh, and and it's just something that's been socially engineered out of us those opportunities have been socially engineered about of us because of how we do church and when that can be changed and you can get begin to see like we got the uh song i mean you know little throw-in ministry song that kids sang in worship that's fine. Imagine a smorgasbord of diverse songs with, with rich and deep meaning. You know, America, English is like the boringest language that there is. It's a constructed, boring language. I mean, some of the other languages have six different words for one thing. There's so much nuance, so much richness. So just imagine if all of that could be a part of, you know, a regular, you know, worship experience. Um, well, that's where I think you're headed if you want to go there, and um, that's what's possible. What if someone's listening today, like, hey, I missed the opportunity to join that group. We're two months in, and it's probably, is there room for somebody to jump on at this board and get caught up? Is that, I'm just asking off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, my own, um, you know, so my own sort of pedag pedagogical framework, I think there's a, a lot of unlearning that has to be done before you can learn. So I really don't like to have people jump in midstream because you all who've gone through this first couple uh -huh. of months have had a chance to, yeah. t you know, you're get defensive and have that addressed and react and get over that and you know yeah. i mean people invariably get defensive and get and react when they hear these terms this is a these are very difficult terms mm -hmm. difficult things this is a difficult issue to um these are difficult issues to address uh, and so people's initial visceral reactions are defensiveness and they need to defend explain i'm not racist uh what I, you know and they got and and you got to do that and get past all of that before you can really learn stuff. And so uh, my preference would be that this group makes it through and then this group um, continues to replicate those ex this experience with the congregation as they gain interest. Yeah, and that's the model. Um, this group kind of goes through a process, and then it's kind of trained the trainers model. So the, the, the leaders, and which include many people in our church. Um, so there'll be, there will be opportunities for all of you. But yeah, great. Awesome. Uh, let's do one more question, and then we'll, uh, we'll call it a day, and we can hang out and chat or whatever, because we do have to get out of here before noon, because there's a wedding coming in. we got to pack up. Any, any other follow-up questions? Yeah, yeah Grant. When when you asked about whiteness and people's reaction to it, uh, um, it seemed like there was fairly neutral response. Uh, is that what you expected, or what would you prefer? Um, yeah, I didn't prefer anything. The response was um, pretty predictable because most uh, white folks don't think about white whiteness, um, so that was pretty expected. Um, but I will say this: um, like I said, there's no such thing as white land. Whiteness is a social construct, as is blackness in the way that we've come to understand it. And the thing that I would uh, say by way of a primer for future learning is um, here's the question that you have to ask yourself. Are you identified as white in American society? And do you identify as white in American society? So do you identify yourself as white in American society? And are you identified as white in American society? Now that may seem, I don't know if that question makes sense to you, but if you think about it and then think about it, <laughs> okay? Because that has meaning to your understanding of that term. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone. Um, thank you, Robert. I didn't say this, but I've mentioned you probably a, every other week because I'm, I'm either talking about the process or I'm uh, even sometimes talking about conversations we've had and, and the impact that it's had on me. So now you've <laughs> you, now you know who I'm talking about. And this won't be the last time you see Robert, I hope. But um, uh, thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate all of your investment in our church and in our leaders and especially in myself. So I'm going to pray, and I think we're going to do a closing song. Uh, if Well, let's just pray and we'll be done. Yeah, that's fine. It's 11-11. So um, 
we can do whatever. There's no rules here. Um, God, I just come before you, and I just give you thanks for Robert and his ministry and the impact that he's had on so many people, and I ask that you would be with us, uh, those here and those who uh, couldn't make it today, those who consider this their community, uh, that you would help us be a church not for ourselves but for the world, um, that you would continue to push us beyond um, what it means to just be a yet another consumer of religious goods, um, but to be a disciple. Um, show us what that means. Um, show, us what it, show us what we need to unlearn and uh, be with us in that process. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.